Every season is spooky season in our book. So settle in and prepare to be shook. You are listening to Shook, a comedic podcast about all things paranormal and unexplained. Hello, I'm Amanda. I'm Santa. And fun fact, if you can't tell from the Christmas lights that I tried to string up in the stew, this is our Christmas episode. So <laughs> our one and done. <laughs> whatever you celebrate with your family or by yourself like I do. <laughs> yes, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever. What is it? Uh, Festivus for the rest of us? Yes. Yes. I got my green. Because I'm the Grinch, apparently. Yeah, and I've got, like, a red color going on. And my lights that I strung up back there are, like, really fucking bright for those of you that are watching on YouTube. So, sorry, I tried. And this is what we're going with. Festivity in the stew. Festivity. For one day only. Limited time only. (laughs) What other fun facts do you have besides, oh, the fact that you literally edited the last episode while you had the plague? Oh, my God. That is a very not fun fact. Yeah, I did edit the last episode while I had severe flu. I was literally on my deathbed in my bed chamber for like five days. I was in bed for five days and several of those days I didn't eat a single thing and I didn't shower either. Like I literally just was asleep in my bed because I was so weak. Yeah. And I thought I was going to die, TBH. And I actually at one point um, asked to die. (laughs) And started writing your will. (laughs) No, at one point I was like, please take me. I don't Wait, want were to you, live anymore. Were you praying to God or praying to God yeah. or praying to the aliens? Either. I was just praying. I was like, I would like to pass away now because I had no like life force. And then yeah. finally my bestie Danielle um, came and she brought me some, she brought me these like electrolyte powders that I could put in my water bottle. Cause literally all I had I had my water bottle in my bed with me, and I was just, like, drinking that periodically. Oof. But, like, no food. No, but it was, like, some knockoff type thing like that. And it actually did help. And, of course, I had, like, a lot of NyQuil. um, So I was just, like, keeping myself knocked out because my body was just so sore. And, yeah, basically just thought I was going to die, and I did edit – while I was dying. And that it was a trip. Great. Well, I was that praying was for you too, although I was not praying for your departure. <laughs> I was praying I didn't that really you want through, to die. Did. <laughs> I didn't really want to die. I just wanted like relief. Yeah. <laughs> Having the and, flu is no freaking joke, dude. Yeah, and like remember on the last episode I said that I had plans of like just ordering sushi and having like fun by myself on Thanksgiving. Mm. Well, I had fun by myself, AKA no, <laughs> did not order sushi, but shout out again to Danielle. She brought me a plate. Uh, Cause Aww. she went to have Thanksgiving with her, her dad and Gail. 
and um, they made me a plate, and so she brought that, and so I actually did get to partake in some turkey and dressing and like you know the classics and she even brought me some pumpkin pie and like a coconut pie and I was like oh my god and it was my first food in days and for it to be Thanksgiving food I was like wow hell yeah Danielle's a real one yes Danielle's the best for that and other than that I don't have any fun facts because mainly I've just been working my ass off to try to make up for the fact that I missed a week of work (laughs) Not a vacation, but a a diecation, a diecation. Yeah, for sure. It was yeah. definitely a staycation. But um, mm-hmm. have you done anything fun? Like, how was your Thanksgiving, etc.? I had a great fucking Thanksgiving. I ate lots of good food. Too much of it, in fact. And part of me really regretted it, but also I was kind of like, whatever. Uh. So, yeah. But yeah, I'll tell you all the juicy deeds later. Oh, of course. It was it was a time off the record. Off the wreck. Let the record I mean, show or not. It's just a miracle <laughs> that I didn't get into a Thanksgiving clapback situation. That's all it is. That's all it is. I feel that. Oh, you know what I did do on Thanksgiving? The only thing that that was actually kind of fun, while I was in my bedchamber, I binge-watched all of Wednesday, the new Addams (gasps) Family series. I still haven't gotten to watch it. On Netflix, starring Jenna Ortega. And no spoilers, but it was really good. I enjoyed it. Um, And it's it's receiving a lot of, like, controversial reviews from hardcore stands of the original show, the original black and white show, as well as... Um, yeah. the Christina Ricci versions. Um, but Christina Ricci herself is in the show. So mm-hmm. it's Christina Ricci approved. Come on. Get with the program. All I know and it's is really I saw good. something with piranhas. <clears throat> yeah. It's honestly so good. And it's so Tim Burton. So like, if you like Tim yeah. Burton, you will like this. If you, if you're just like over Tim Burton, then maybe not. Maybe skip it. Maybe just like skip it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god, you know what I also watched last what? night? Oh my god, I'm shook from this, okay? Like, first of all, I need to preface this by saying that I had no prior real knowledge about this, which, like, makes me feel kind of stupid because I feel like this is common knowledge, but I watched the new docudrama on Netflix. It's called Blood, Sex, and Royalty, And Mm. so it's a docudrama. And so they've got like these interviews with like historians and then they've got these really well produced and well acted recrees of the whole Anne Boleyn timeline with Henry VIII. Like I said, I didn't really, I've never really read a whole lot about her. I just knew the surface level uh, knowledge that she was ordered to be executed by Henry VIII. Um, But watching this, like, girl, I was laying in my bed sobbing, like, just sobbing because it was so actually sad. Like, I've never really, like, stopped. You know how when we think about the past, like, that far in the past, the 1500s, the 1600s, it's so far removed from us now that 
like we talk about Marie Antoinette being beheaded and we talk about it so casually Anne Boleyn being beheaded. We talk about it just like, Oh, beheadings, beheadings. No, like Mm. that shit actually was very deep. And, and she was just done so wrong by him. It was like, he loved her so much. Like at first, really, he just wanted to take her virginity and was willing to move mountains to make that happen. Uh, and then did. Wasn't he impotent? No. Uh, he was able nope. to sire. He was he was able to get people pregnant. He just had a lot of trouble producing a male heir. Gotcha. And that okay. was all he really wanted in this world was to produce a male heir. And she got pregnant multiple times, actually, with boys, but miscarried them both. Mm. And he blamed her a lot for um, not producing a male heir. And she had promised him that she would give him one. And, yeah, so he he moved heaven and earth to, like, get married to her and take her virginity because he loved her at first when she was young and fresh and full of promises of having a boy. And then when she didn't deliver on that, he moved on to the next young virgin Mm -hmm. while, and then it was like, and when he met her, he was already married to someone else who could not produce him a male heir. And he basically cast queen Catherine aside for Anne Boleyn and then he cast Anne Boleyn aside for Jane Seymour and then he just it was like this cycle that she was a part of and like she was a part of casting this one woman aside but then thought she was special then herself got cast aside and it was just so I was so devastated to see how ruthless King Henry VIII really was and how could you order someone that you've loved so much to be executed like that? And she, and he also ordered her brother to be executed and several of his personal friends and staff members because he, he fate, he wanted to get rid of her so bad that it wasn't enough to just like maybe divorce her or annul the marriage Mm-hmm. He he made up allegations that she had committed adultery with multiple people, including her own brother. So he made up accusations of adultery, incest, and treason mm-hmm. so that she would for sure get executed and just be not a problem anymore. What a trifling asshole. Meanwhile... They had a daughter named Elizabeth who went on to be Queen Elizabeth I and reign for like 44 years and never produce an heir. So she never like that. The great sweet irony of the whole thing is that he never wanted her to be the heir. And she ended up being the heir by default. And she like, <laughs> and she did everything she could to keep her mother's like memory alive positively and then was like, no, I don't want to keep this lineage going, this bullshit, like, disgusting bloodline. Fuck that. <laughs> Feminist queen. Um, but, yeah, I just – I feel kind of dumb that I didn't, like, know that history. But now that I know that history, I'm just like, 
I'm forlorn about it. I'm forlorn. Yeah. It's been a while, man. Don't don't get down about that. There's so much from history class that I've forgotten, which is part of the I reason why I love doing this pod is because we get to look at learning. history and yes. things. Yeah. I just keep seeing all these like historical, sometimes it's historical dramas like House of the Dragon, which is not really historical, but it's rooted in some medieval history and things like that. Um, when I see the treatment of women mm-hmm. over the years and it's like, we still don't get treated that great sometimes, but I, I feel really grateful. Like watching that series, I felt so grateful that I have the choice to not have a kid that Mm -hmm. I have the choice of who I marry. I'm not just like betrothed to somebody that I have to tolerate. Right. Or I have to just like for optics be married to this guy, but I have a side piece that's like on the low and that's who the real father of my babies are. But I, I tell everybody else that the king is the father, but he's not. It's from it's the meat, not piece. the potatoes. It's the stable boy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Well, speaking but, of maltreatment yeah. of women, I just finished Handmaid's Tale. And <gasps> oh, oh, I have my God. I haven't watched any of the new season yet. Okay. I'm going to have to do it. I'm not going to spoil it. All I'll say is that I have mixed feelings about the very end. Damn. You know, you know. Is it the series finale? Or it can't be. It can't be. Oh, okay. Well, I hope not. I have so many. Oh, no, it can't I don't know. Be. Like it, I hope sure it's not done. Not. I don't think it is. I will have to watch it now that I can binge all of it. That's my oh, preferred Zena, way. Guess what? What? Guess what? I got myself a new ghost book. Oh, my God. Yes, it's called Ghost Stories of Georgia, True Tales of Ghostly Hauntings by Chris Wrangler. I got it up it. in Delonica. Look at Hunty. She has a ghost book. I've got several to ghost books. Flex on us. But this is my new fave, I think. I read it in the car on the way back from Delonica, and there's some really good good bites in here. I, I really enjoy it. Hell yeah. Yeah. Ghost book recommendation by Amanda. It was so cute because Connelly and I were in one of those random shops in Dahlonega. And we were just looking at all the little different gadgets. Saw some of that Bumblebee Jasper I showed you. All the crystals you could think of. All the bear paraphernalia. Bigfoot paraphernalia. And then I see this little section off to the side and it's just books. And of course I see this one and I'm like, oh! And Connelly's like, research? And I said, yeah. It's for research. It's for research. And he was like, let's get it. And I was like, ah, you're the best. <laughs> Thanks, Connelly. <laughs> Thank you, husband. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty, pretty stoked about it. Not gonna lie. And do you know what today is as this episode's released? Do you know what the day is? Uh, the last day for me to pay rent. Uh, <laughs> uh I guess, yes. And it's Oh, also... wait, no, sorry, the day of the release. I thought you were talking about the day of us recording. <laughs> oh, and no. And I was like, it's December 5th. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> no, the day that it comes out, you know what it'll be? It's not even a a day. It's just what this is. It's the it's 13th the episode. Oh! It's I the 13th episode. Oh, wow. We love that number. And yes, that is actually, fun fact for me, my favorite number. I've had lots of... Uh, instances with the number 13 that were quite favorable in my life. So I, I like it, but did you know the fear of the number 13 is called Triskaidekaphobia. <laughs> it's a mouthful, honey. But yeah, there are folks out there who hate the number 13, and speaking of history, there's lots of different historical reasons why people hate and fear the number 13. And I was tempted to make that my topic today, but then I decided yeah. I would stay the course because I've literally had this story in my back pocket for a good chunk That's of my really life, cool, actually. <laughs> yeah, I dude. Really, I didn't really realize that it was going to be the 13th episode. And that's awesome. And I also love the number 13. And the fun fact, the only tattoo I have on my body is the number 13. Um, And it is a Friday the 13th flash tattoo, which for those of you who don't know what that is, every time there's a Friday the 13th, a lot of tattoo shops across the country will run like a tattoo special where they have um, specific flash designs that you can choose from for that day and it's just first come first serve you walk in and usually it's like a hundred dollars or less for the piece when I got this one done it was only like thirty dollars so it was like a really good deal and it's just like a bloody 13 on my leg it's bright red it's bright red honey it could be a shaving accident or it could be a tattoo I've had people think that like just seeing the red peeking out thinking that my leg was bleeding no, it's not. I'm fine, but I do cut myself shaving a lot. Yeah, same. Yeah. Emily gave me one of those crystal scrubber things called Bleem, I think. It was on a Instagram ad. I saw it and I was like, ooh, I think I want that. And uh, mm-hmm. Emily said, I have one. So she gave me her extra. And let me just say, if you do not prep the area with a lot of lotion yeah Ooh, honey you are in for a world of hurt it literally exfoliates your life not just a few hairs not just your your first layer of skin it wants to just completely abominate you that's the twenty. no offense to this great gift that emily has bestowed upon you but i have to tell you what the best exfoliation it that i have found is it's a homemade I make it every year at Christmas time for my friends. Spoiler alert. Um, It's just a coffee scrub. And I use coffee grounds. I usually get Starbucks holiday blend because it like smells really nice. And it's Mm -hmm. like aromatherapy in the shower. Um, You just mix that with coconut oil Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. some sugar, pure cane sugar. And it like, it's the best pre-shave exfoliator and you, like, won't cut yourself, and it'll be, like, a really smooth shave. Um, I'm here for this. Which is great for me because I'm, like, very hairy, and it's, like, really hard for me to get, like, a good shave ever <laughs> unless I use, like, a good exfoliator first. So, yeah, TMI, Nerd. but also info. 
for those who want to make this scrub. And if anyone does want to make this scrub for this holiday season for yourself or to give as a gift, um, when sometime around when this episode comes out, I will post the recipe because you have to yes. have certain measurements to make the scrub. Yes. Do you want to tell me what story had you shook this week? I think you go first. So I'm sure you probably already know that I have a new ghost book. Mm-hmm. You can, it's safe to assume that I have a new ghost book. Um, it's called Yuletide Frights, Victorian Ghost Stories for Christmas. This is, this is Oh it. my God, I love it's it. Got a, it's got Krampus, Demon Sitch on the cover edited and introduced by William P. Simmons. And there were a couple of stories in here that I found interesting. Um, So these are almost all of these stories in this book take place in Victorian England. They're mainly like ghost stories and also lots and lots of English slang that, it can get a little muddly when you're reading them. Cause it's like, mm-hmm. what are they? What? <laughs> so, um, the story that had me shook from this great Christmas ghost book, Yuletide Frights is a story called a strange Christmas game by Charlotte Riddell and Charlotte Riddell. She wrote a lot of ghost stories and ghost books fiction ghost books Mm -hmm. and ghost stories in the victorian era england so she was very popular for that at the time she was right up there with charles dickens in popularity i feel like but well not as probably not as celebrated as charles dickens because she was a woman so but still lame she was out here Mm. believe that So, it was the middle of November when we arrived at Martingdale and found the place anything but romantic or pleasant. The walks were wet and sodden. The trees were leafless. There were no flowers save a few late pink roses blooming in the garden. It had been a wet season, and the place looked miserable. Claire would not ask Alice down to keep her company in the winter months as she intended, and for myself... The Cronsons were still absent in New Norfolk, where they meant to spend Christmas with old Mrs. Cronson, now recovered. Altogether, Martingdale seemed dreary enough, and the ghost stories we had laughed at while sunshine flooded the room became less unreal when we had nothing but blazing fires and wax candles to dispel the gloom. They became more real also when servant after servant left us to seek situations elsewhere. When noises grew frequent in the house, when we ourselves, Claire and I, with our own ears, heard the tramp, tramp, the banging and the clattering which had been described to us. By the way, just so everyone knows, this story is about a brother and sister. So the narrator slash the voice of the story is the brother and Claire is the sister and they have inherited this estate called Martingdale. So that is what Martingdale is referring to in the story. My dear reader, 
you doubtless are free from superstitious fancies. You poo-poo the existence of ghosts and only wish you could find a haunted house in which to spend a night, which is all very brave and praiseworthy, but wait till you're left in a dreary, desolate old country mansion filled with the most unaccountable sounds, without a servant, with none save an old caretaker and his wife, who, living at the extremist end of the building, heard nothing of the tramp, tramp, bang, bang going on at all hours of the night. When I first read this, I was like, what if they're the reason for the bang, bang, all hey. hours of the night? <laughs> hey. Hey. I've read it. The old there. caretaker and his wife. Yeah. <laughs> Making all that noise in the night. At first, I imagined the noises were produced by some evil disposed persons who wished for purposes of their own to keep the house uninhabited. But by degrees, Claire and I came to the conclusion the visitation must be supernatural and Martingdale, by consequence, untenantable. Still being practical people, unlike our predecessors, not having money to live where and how we liked, we decided to watch and see whether we could trace any human influence in the matter. If not, it was agreed we were to pull down the right wing of the house and the principal staircase. For nights and nights, we sat up till two or three o'clock in the morning. Claire engaged in needlework, I reading with a revolver lying on the table beside me. But nothing, neither sound nor appearance, rewarded our vigil. This confirmed my first ideas that the sounds were not supernatural. But just to test the matter, I determined on Christmas Eve, the anniversary of Mr. Jeremy Lester's disappearance, to keep watch myself in the red bedchamber. Even to Claire, I never mentioned my intention. About ten, tired out with our previous vigils, we each retired to rest. Somewhat ostentatiously, perhaps, I noisily shut the door of my room, and when I opened it half an hour afterwards, no mouse could have pursued its way along the corridor with greater silence and caution than myself. Quite in the dark, I sat in the red room, for over an hour, I might as well have been in my grave for anything I could see in the apartment, but at the end of that time, the moon rose and cast strange lights across the floor and upon the wall of the haunted chamber. Hitherto, I kept my watch opposite the window. Now I changed my place to a corner near the door, where I was shaded from observation by the heavy hangings of the bed and an antique wardrobe. Still, I sat on but still no sound broke the silence. I was weary with many nights watching and tired of my solitary vigil. I dropped at last into a slumber from which I awakened by hearing the door softly opened. John, said my sister almost in a whisper. John, are you here? Yes, Claire, I answered. But what are you doing up at this hour? Come downstairs, she replied. They're in the oak parlor. I did not need any explanation as to whom she meant, but crept downstairs after her, warned by an uplifted hand of the necessity for silence and caution. By the open door of the oak parlor, she paused, and we both looked in. There was the room we left in darkness overnight, with a bright wood fire blazing on the hearth, candles on the chimney piece, the small table pulled out from its accustomed corner, and two men seated beside it, playing at cribbage. We could see the face of the younger player. It was that of a man about five and twenty, 
of a man who had lived hard and wickedly, who had wasted his substance and his health, who had been, while in the flesh, Jeremy Lester. So damn, Jeremy Lester was only 25 and (laughs) apparently was looking very haggard there. (laughs) Like, like he's lived his life very rough. It would be difficult for me to say how I knew this, how in a moment I identified the features of the player with those of the man who had been missing for 41 years, 41 years that very night. Hmm. He was dressed in the costume of a bygone period. His hair was powdered, and round his wrists there were ruffles of lace. He looked like one who, having come from some great party, had sat down after his return home to play cards with an intimate friend. On his little finger, there sparkled a ring. In the front of his shirt, there gleamed a valuable diamond. There were diamond buckles on his shoes, and according to the fashion of his time, he wore knee breeches and silk stockings, which showed off advantageously the shape of a remarkably good leg and ankle. <laughs> Don't okay. tip me with a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, Charlotte. <laughs> the author. I got to make sure that I emphasize that he was built. He was built right. Built Ford tough. <laughs> he was built Ford tough. <laughs> he sat. <laughs> Not this. <laughs> The kid cough. (laughs) (laughs) He sat opposite the door, but never once lifted his eyes to it. His attention seemed concentrated on the cards. For a time, there was utter silence in the room, broken only by the momentous counting of the game. In the doorway, we stood, holding our breath, terrified and yet fascinated by the scene which was being acted before us. The ashes dropped on the hearth softly, and like the snow, we could hear the rustle of the cards as they were dealt out and fell upon the table. We listened to the count, 15-2, 15-4, and so forth, but there was no other word spoken, till at length the player whose face we could not see exclaimed, I win. The game is mine. Then his opponent took up the cards, sorted them over negligently in his hand, put them close together, and flung the whole pack in his guest's face, exclaiming, Cheat! Liar! Take that! There was a bustle and confusion, a flinging over of chairs and fierce gesticulation, and such a noise of passionate voices mingling that we could not hear a sentence which was uttered. All at once, however, Jeremy Lester strode out of the room in so great a hurry that he almost touched us where we stood out of the room and tramp, tramp up the staircase to the red room, whence he descended in a few minutes with a couple of rapiers under his arm. Rapiers are swords, by the way. I had to look that up. I was like, what is that? When he re-entered the room, he gave, as it seemed to us, the other man his choice of the weapons. And then he flung open the window, and after ceremoniously giving place for his opponent to pass out first, he walked forth into the night air. Claire and I followed. We went through the garden and down a narrow winding walk to a smooth piece of turf, sheltered from the north by a plantation of young fir trees. 
It was a bright moonlight night by this time, and we could distinctly see Jeremy Lester measuring off the ground. When you say three, he said, at last to the man whose back was still towards us. They had drawn lots for the ground, and the lot had fallen against Mr. Lester. He stood thus with the moonbeams falling upon him, and a handsomer fellow I would never desire to behold. Also, drawing lots is like drawing straws, basically. Mm. Just to be clear, one began the other, two, and before our kinsman had the slightest suspicion of his design, he was upon him, and his rapier through Jeremy Lester's breast. At the sight of that cowardly treachery, Claire screamed aloud. In a moment, the combatants had disappeared. The moon was obscured behind a cloud, and we were standing in the shadow of the fir plantation, shivering with cold and terror. But we knew at last what had become of the late owner of Martingdale, that he had fallen, not in a fair fight, but foully murdered by a false friend. When late on Christmas morning I awoke, it was to see a white world, to behold the ground and trees and shrubs, all laden and covered with snow. There was snow everywhere, such snow as no person could remember having fallen for 41 years. It was on just such a Christmas as this that Mr. Jeremy disappeared, remarked the old sexton to my sister, who had insisted on dragging me through the snow to church, whereupon Claire fainted away and was carried into the vestry, where I made a full confession to the vicar of all we had beheld the previous night. At first, that worthy individual rather inclined to treat the matter lightly, but when a fortnight after the snow melted away and the fir plantation came to be examined, he confessed there might be more things in heaven and earth than his limited philosophy had dreamed of. In a little clear space just within the plantation, Jeremy Lester's body was found. Mm. We knew it by the ring and the diamond buckles and the sparkling breast pin. And Mr. Cronston, who, in his capacity as magistrate, came over to inspect these relics, was visibly perturbed at my narrative. Pray, Mr. Lester, did you in your dream see the face of the gentleman, your kinsman's opponent? No, I answered. He sat and stood with his back to us the whole time. There's nothing more, of course, to be done in this matter, observed Mr. Cronson. Nothing. I replied, and there the affair would doubtless have terminated, but that a few days afterwards, when we were dining at Cronson Park, Claire all of a sudden dropped the glass of water she was carrying to her lips and exclaiming, look, John, there he is, rose from her seat and with a face as white as the tablecloth, pointed to a portrait hanging on the wall. I saw him for an instant when he turned his head towards the door as Jeremy Lester left it, she explained. That is he. Of what followed after this identification, I have only the vaguest recollection. Servants rushed hither and thither. Mrs. Cronson dropped off her chair into hysterics. The young ladies gathered round their mom. Mr. Cronson, trembling like one in an egg fit, attempted some kind of explanation, while Claire kept praying to be taken away, only to be taken away. I took her away, not merely from Cronson Park, but from Martingdale. 
Before we left the latter place, however, I had an interview with Mr. Cronson, who said the portrait Claire had identified was that of his wife's father, the last person who saw Jeremy Lester alive. Mm. He's an old man now, finished Mr. Cronson, a man of over 80 who has confessed everything to me. You won't bring further sorrow and disgrace upon us by making this matter public. I promised him I would keep silence, but the story gradually oozed out, and the Cronsons left the country. My sister never returned to Martingdale. She married and is living in London. Though I assure her there are no strange noises in my house, she will not visit Belfordshire, where the little girl she wanted me so long ago to think of seriously is now my wife and the mother of my children. So... Basically, it's a Christmas ghost story and a caper solved. Like, basically, a caper was solved because of the ghost showing them what happened on the night, on the anniversary of the night that it happened. 41st anniversary. (laughs) Um, Which is really interesting. And it's, like, kind of sweet. It's, like, brother and sister came into some... They inherited some property. They thought they were, they thought they had gotten a come up, you know? Yeah. But it was just a murder. It was just a murder house. <laughs> it was a Christmas Eve murder house. Oh the my ha- goodness. Haunted holiday home. And that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. Uh. I like that. I've never heard a story like that before. <laughs> Very interesting. It's kind of, I feel like it was kind of like, it had the classic like Victorian ghost story formula for sure. But I, I liked that there was that extra twist of like finding out who the killer was because I wasn't sure we were going to find out who the killer was. Yeah. A but. murder mystery. But a holiday it was Mr. Cronson's father-in-law all along, and he knew it, too. He Call. knew it the whole time. Mr. Cronson, more like Mr. Crook. Oh, <laughs> shots fired. <laughs> ooh. Ooh, I, ooh. Ooh, I'm telling. Did you say bad words in the stew? Oh, ooh. <laughs> Oh, By the gosh. way, mm-hmm. a fun another fun fact, I made a London fog today um, just to go along with my English English Christmas tale. And it's really I'm good. It's Earl Grey. An Earl Grey London fog. Earl Grey. I should probably drink some more tea. I love it. I do enjoy a tea. I've got some ginger, some lemon ginger zinger tea. Oh, I I've love some, lemon zinger. It's my fave. It's so good. Hibiscus. I think I've got, I think I've got peppermint tea too. I love these teas. So good. Anyways. Well, do you have any more stories from your book that you'd like to share? Um, I have this other story that I could share. Why don't you just go on? Go ahead. This is called Number 90. By Bithia Mary Croker. Hmm. 
For a period extending over some years, a notice appeared periodically in various daily papers. It read, To let furnished for a term of years at a very low rental, a large old-fashioned family residence comprising 11 bedrooms, four reception rooms, dressing rooms, two staircases, complete servants' offices, ample accommodation for a gentleman's establishment, including six stall stables, coach house, etc. This advertisement referred to number 90. Occasionally, you saw it running for a week or a fortnight at a stretch, as if it were resolved to force itself into consideration by sheer persistency. Sometimes for months, I looked for it in vain. Other folks might possibly fancy that the effort of the house agent had been crowned at last with success, that it was let and no longer in the market. I knew better. I knew that it would never, never find a tenant. Okay, negative. <laughs> I knew it would Shook. never. Negativity podcast. Yeah. yeah. Negativity book. <laughs> Negativity story. I knew better. I knew that it would never never find a tenant. I knew that it was passed on as a hopeless case from house agent to house agent. I knew that it would never be occupied, save by rats. And more than this, I knew the reason why. I will not say in what square, street, or road number 90 may be found, nor will I divulge to human being its, its precise and exact locality. But this I'm prepared to state that it is positively in existence, is in Charleston, and is still empty. Twenty years ago, this very Christmas, I was down from New York visiting my friend John Hollyoak, a civil engineer from Charleston. We were guests at a little dinner party in the neighborhood of the South Battery. Conversation became very brisk as the champagne circulated, and many topics were started, discussed, and dismissed. We talked on an extraordinary variety of subjects. I distinctly recollect a long argument on mushrooms. Mushrooms, murders, racing, cholera. From cholera, we came to sudden death. From sudden death <laughs> to churchyards. And from churchyards, it was naturally but a step to ghosts. John Hollyoak, who was the most vehement, the most incredulous, the most jocular, and the most derisive of the anti-ghost faction, brought matters to a climax by declaring that nothing would give him greater pleasure than to pass a night in a haunted house, and the worse its character, the better he would be pleased. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> Sounds like some shit, me. I would I say. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, oh, I don't care. I'm not scared, and then I get there, and I'm scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like, give me the worst, like, abandoned asylum you've got. I'll stay a week in there. I won't even make it through the night. His challenge was instantly taken up by our somewhat ruffled host, who warmly assured him that his wishes could easily be satisfied and that he would be accommodated with a night's lodging in a haunted house within 24 hours. In fact, in a house of such a desperate reputation that even the adjoining mansion stood vacant. He then proceeded to give a brief outline of the history of number 90. It had once been the residence of a well-known county family, but what evil events had happened therein, tradition did not relate. 
On the death of the last owner, a diabolical-looking aged person, much resembling the typical wizard. That's rude. (laughs) (laughs) I read that weird, too. The way that people insult others back then is just... Diabolical. (laughs) Like wizard. Much resembling a wet rat. Much resembling the typical wizard, it had passed into the hands of a kinsman, resident abroad, who had no wish to return to Charleston, and who desired his agents to let it, if they could, a most significant condition. Year by year went by, and still this highly desirable family mansion could find no tenant, although the rent was reduced and reduced and again reduced to almost zero Almost zero. Sounds like the dream. (laughs) Haunted or not, I'm moving in. (laughs) What if they were like, one (laughs) dollar? Yes. They probably were, because like one dollar back then was like way more. (laughs) A fortune, yeah. (laughs) One dollar to stay in this house. The most ghastly whispers were afloat. The most terrible experiences were actually proclaimed on the housetops. No tenant would remain even gratis, and for the last 10 years, this handsome, desirable town family residence had been the abode of rats by day and something else by night, so said the neighbors. Of course, it was the very thing for John, and he snatched up the gauntlet on the spot. He scoffed at its evil repute and solemnly promised to rehabilitate its character within a week. I was charged by our host to serve as a witness, to verify that John Hollyoak did indeed spend the night at number 90. The next night at 10 o'clock, I found myself standing with John on the steps of the notorious abode, but I was not going to remain. The carriage that brought us was... (laughs) The carriage that brought us was to take me back to my respectable chambers. Mm. This ill... My chambers are respectable. I ain't staying in this godforsaken shithole. Is what Wizard she, cave. She's saying. <laughs> I ain't staying in this nasty Airbnb where I know damn well there's a camera in the air vent. Anyway. <laughs> oh my god. <sighs> the ill-fated house was large, solemn-looking, and gloomy. A heavy portico frowned down on neighboring barefaced hall doors. The elderly caretaker was prudently awaiting us outside with a key, which said key he turned in the lock and admitted us into a great echoing hall, black as night, saying as he did so, my missus has made the bed and stoked up a good fire in the first front, sir. Your things is all laid out and I hope you'll have a comfortable night, sir. No, sir. Thank you, sir. Excuse me. I will not come in. Good night. And with the words still on his lips, he clattered down the steps with the most indecent haste and vanished. And of course, you will not come in either, said John. It it is not in the bond, and I prefer to face them alone. And he laughed contemptuously, a laugh that had a curious echo. It struck me at the time. A laugh strangely repeated with an unpleasant mocking emphasis. Call for me, alive or dead, at eight o'clock tomorrow morning, he added, pushing me forcibly out 
into the porch and closing the door with a heavy reverberating clang that sounded halfway down the street. Go on, get. He said go on. I said go on. I, I don't know. Like, was he just like hankering to go masturbate or something? Like, I, I, I finally have the place to myself. Like, you know what I mean? Like, go on, everybody get out. Get out. I got a raging boner. It's, it's giving, it's giving something. Of I've got to look at this ankle porn. <laughs> yes. I'm going to go see if I can find any portraits. When the ankle's so slender and it comes to a point, it just titillates me in a a fashion that I can't even articulate. The (laughs) curves and the bone. I did call for him the next morning, as desired, with the caretaker, who stared at John's commonplace, self-possessed appearance with an expression of respectful astonishment. (laughs) So it was all humbug, of course, I said, as he took my arm and we set off for our club. You shall have the whole story whenever we have had something to eat, he replied somewhat impatiently. It'll keep till after breakfast. I'm famishing. I remarked that he looked unusually grave as we chatted over our broiled fish and omelet, and that occasionally his attention seemed wandering, to say the least. The moment he had brought out his cigar case and lit up, he turned to me and said, I see you're just quivering to know my experience, and I won't keep you in suspense any longer. In four words, I've seen them. I merely looked at him with widely parted mouth and staring interrogative eyes. I believe I had best endeavor to give the narrative without comment, and in John Hollyoak's own way. This is, as well as I can recollect, his experience word for word. I proceeded up the stairs after I'd shut you out, lighting my way by a match, and found the front room easily, as the door was ajar, and it was lit up by a roaring and most cheerful-looking fire and two wax candles. It was a comfortable apartment, furnished with old-fashioned chairs and tables and the traditional four-poster bed. There were numerous doors which proved to be cupboards, and when I had executed a rigorous search in each of these closets and locked them and investigated the bed above and beneath, sounded the walls and bolted the door, I sat down before the fire, lit a cigar, opened a book, and felt that I was going to be master of the situation and most thoroughly and comfortably at home. Hmm. My novel proved absorbing. I read on greedily, chapter after chapter, and so interested was I, and amused, for it was a lively book, that I positively lost sight of my whereabouts and fancied myself reading in my own chamber. There was not a sound. The coals dropping from the grate occasionally broke the silence, till a neighboring church clock slowly boomed twelve. The hour, I said to myself with a laugh, as I gave the fire a rousing poke and commenced a new chapter. But ere I had read three pages, I had occasion to pause and listen. What was that distinct sound now coming nearer and nearer? Rats, of course, said common sense. It was just the house for vermin. Then a longish silence. Again a stir, sounds approaching, as if apparently caused by many feet passing down the corridor, High-heeled shoes, the sweeping switch of silken trains. Of course it was all my imagination, I assured myself. Or rats. Rats were capable of making such curious improbable noises. Then another silence. No sound but cinders and the ticking of my watch, 
which I had laid upon the table. I resumed my book, rather ashamed, and a little indignant with myself for having neglected it, and calmly dismissed my late interruption as rats. Nothing but rats. I had been reading and smoking for some time in a placid and highly incredulous frame of mind when I was somewhat rudely startled by a loud single knock at my room door. I took no notice of it, but merely laid down my novel and sat tight. Another knock, more imperious this time. After a moment's mental deliberation, I arose, armed myself with the poker, prepared to brain any number of rats, and threw the door open with a violent swing that strained its very hinges and beheld to my amazement a tall powdered footman in a lace scarlet uniform who, making a formal inclination of his head, astonished me still further by saying, Dinner is ready. <laughs> I'm not coming, I replied without a moment's hesitation, and thereupon I slammed the door in his face, locked it, and resumed my seat, also my book. But reading was a farce. My ears were aching for the next sound. It came soon. Rapid steps running up the stairs, and again a single knock. I went over to the door and once more discovered the tall butler, who repeated with a studied courtesy, Dinner is ready, and the company are waiting. I told you I was not coming. Be off and be hanged, I cried again, <laughs> shutting the door violently. <laughs> Douche canoe. Okay, damn. <laughs> He really must be trying to get her get his rocks off with that novel. He's trying to just get him to come to supper. <laughs> he was really in such a hurry to read his book. Bless his heart. <laughs> this time, I did not make even a pretense at reading. I merely sat and waited for the next move. I had not long to sit. In ten minutes, I heard a third loud summons. I rose, went to the door, and tore it open. There, as I expected, was the servant, again, with his parrot speech. Dinner is ready, the company are waiting, and the master says you must come. All right, then, I'll come, I replied, <laughs> I replied, wearied by reason of his importunity and feeling suddenly fired with a desire to see the end of the adventure. He accordingly led the way downstairs, and I followed him noting as I went the gold buttons on his coat, also that the hall and passages were now brilliantly illuminated by glowing candles and hung with living green, the crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflecting back the light. There were several uniformed servants passing to and fro, and from the dining room there issued a buzz of tongues, loud volleys of laughter, many hilarious voices, and a clatter of knives and forks. I was not left much time for speculation, as in another second I found myself inside the door, and my escort announced me in a loud voice as Mr. Hollyoak. I could hardly credit my senses as I looked around and saw about two dozen people dressed in a fashion of the 18th century, seated at the table, set for a sumptuous Christmas dinner, and lighted up by a blaze of wax candles in massive candelabra. A swarthy elderly gentleman who presided at the head of the board rose deliberately as I entered. He was dressed in a crimson coat, braided with silver. He wore a white wig, had the most piercing black eyes I ever encountered, made me the finest bow I ever received in all my life, 
and with a polite wave of his hand, indicated my seat, a vacant chair between two powdered and embroidered beauties with overflowing white shoulders and necks sparkling with diamonds. At first, I was fully convinced that the whole affair was a superbly matured, practical joke. Everything looked so real, so truly flesh and blood, so complete in every detail. But I gazed around in vain for one familiar face. I saw young, old, and elderly, handsome and the reverse. On all faces, there was a similar expression, reckless, hardened defiance and something else that made me shudder, but that I could not classify or define. Were they a secret community? Burglars or counterfeiters? But no, in one rapid glance, I noticed that they belonged exclusively to the upper stratum of society, bygone society. The jabber of talking had momentarily ceased and the host imperiously hammering the table with a knife handle said in a singularly harsh grating voice, ladies and gentlemen, permit me to give you a toast. Our guest, looking straight at me with his glittering coal black eyes, every glass was immediately raised. 20 faces were turned towards mine. When happily a sudden impulse seized me, I sprang to my feet and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I beg to thank you for your kind hospitality, but before I accept it, allow me to say grace. I did not wait for permission, but hurriedly repeated a Latin benediction. Ere the last syllable was uttered, in an instant there was a violent crash, an uproar, a sound of running, of screams, groans and curses, and then utter darkness. I found myself standing alone by a big mahogany table, which I could just dimly discern by the aid of the street lamp that threw its meager rays into the great empty dining room from two deep and narrow windows. I must confess that I felt my nerves a little shaken by this instantaneous change from light to darkness, from a crowd of gay and noisy companions to utter solitude and silence. I stood for a moment trying to recover my mental balance. I rubbed my eyes hard to assure myself that I was wide awake. And then I placed this very cigar case in the middle of the table as a sign and token that I had been downstairs, which cigar case I found exactly where I left it this morning and then went and groped my way into the hall and regained my room. I met with no obstacle en route. I saw no one, but as I closed and double-locked my door, I distinctly heard a low laugh outside the keyhole, a sort of suppressed, malicious titter that made me furious. I opened the door at once. There was nothing to be seen. I waited and listened, dead silence. I then undressed and went to bed, resolved that a whole army of butlers would fail to allure me once more to that Christmas feast. I was determined not to lose my night's rest, ghosts or no ghosts. Just as I was dozing off, I remember hearing the neighboring clock chime two. It was the last sound I was aware of. The house was now as silent as a vault. My fire burnt away cheerfully. I was no longer in the least degree inclined for reading, and I fell fast asleep and slept soundly until I heard the cabs and milk carts beginning their morning career. I then rose, dressed at my leisure, 
and found you, my good faithful friend, awaiting me rather anxiously on the hall door steps. I've not done with that house yet. I'm determined to find out who these people are and where they come from. I shall sleep there again tonight, along with my bulldog, and you will see that I shall have news for you tomorrow morning, if I'm still alive to tell the tale, he added with a laugh. In vain, I would have dissuaded him. I protested, argued, and implored. I declared that rashness was not courage, that he had seen enough, that I, who had seen nothing and only listened to his experience, was convinced that number 90 was a house to be avoided. I might just as well have talked to my umbrella. So once more, I reluctantly accompanied him to his previous night's lodging. Once more, I saw him swallowed up inside the gloomy, forbidding-looking, re-echoing hall. I then went home in an unusually anxious, semi-excited, nervous state of mind. I lay awake, tumbling and tossing, hour after hour, a prey to the most foolish ideas, ideas I would have laughed to scorn in daylight. More than once, I was certain that I heard John Holly Oak distractedly calling me, and I sat up in bed and listened intently. Of course it was fancy, for the instant I did so, there was no sound. At the first gleam of winter dawn, I rose, dressed, and swallowed a cup of good strong coffee to clear my brain from the misty notions it had harbored during the night. And then I invested myself in the warmest top coat and set off for number 90. Early as it was, it was but half past seven, I found the caretaker was before me, pacing the pavement, his face drawn with a melancholy expression. I was not disposed to wait for eight o'clock. I was too uneasy, too impatient for further particulars of the Christmas dinner party. So I rang with all my might and knocked with all my strength. No sound, no sound within, no answer. But John was always a heavy sleeper. I was resolved to arouse him all the same and knocked and rang and rang and knocked incessantly for 10 minutes. I then stooped down and applied my eye to the keyhole. I looked steadily into the aperture till I became accustomed to the darkness. And then it seemed to me that another eye, a very strange fiery eye was glaring into mine from the other side of the door. I removed my eye and applied my mouth instead and shouted with all the power of my lungs, John, John Holly Oak. How his name echoed and re-echoed up that dark and empty house. He must hear that, I said to myself as I pressed my ear closely against the lock and listened with throbbing suspense. The echo of Holly Oak had hardly died away when I swear that I distinctly heard a low, sniggering, mocking laugh that was my only answer. That and a vast, unresponsive silence. I was now quite desperate. I shook the door frantically with all my strength. I broke the bell. In short, my behavior was such that it excited the curiosity of a police officer who crossed the road to know what was up. I want to get in, I panted breathless with my exertions. You better stay where you are, said the police officer. The outside of this house is the best of it. There are terrible stories. But there's a gentleman inside it, I interrupted impatiently. He slept there last night and I can't wake him. He has the key. Oh, you can't wake him, returned the police officer gravely. Then we must get a locksmith. 
but already the thoughtful caretaker had procured one, and already a considerable and curious crowd surrounded the steps. After five minutes of maddening delay, the great heavy door was opened and swung slowly back, and I instantly rushed in, followed less frantically by the police officer and the caretaker. I had not far to seek John Hollyoak. He and his dog were lying at the foot of the stairs, both stone dead. Oh no. The end. That's it? Damn. Yeah. They <laughs> left. Yeah, it's just, he's dead. The end. Lord, what an abrupt ending. I know. <laughs> no. Well, very interesting. Yeah. So he was like, he fancied himself a skeptic at first. John Hollyoke did. And then he was like, I can stay there by myself a night. And then he even saw ghosts. And then he wanted to go back for seconds. He still wanted more. Yeah. I think he had a ghost fetish. (laughs) That's funny. But anyway, that was a lot of reading. And my head hurts. Twas. I'm shook from that. My head hurting. What had you shook? <laughs> Alrighty. Well, I'm just going to leap right into my story. Let's see. Okay. Do, do, do. All right. The story that had me shook this week is Resurrection Mary. Ooh, what's that? Chicago's most well-known, most famous ghost. It's like Chicago's hottest club. I'm just kidding. Oh my gosh. I don't know this story though. Okay, well, I've never heard it. to get in. All right, so if you ever get the chance to visit Justice, Illinois, which is slightly southwest of Chicago, you just might meet Mary, a brightly illuminated apparition who appears walking along Archer Avenue and the Resurrection Catholic Cemetery. And sometimes you might spot her at local dancing venues. Dozens and dozens of witnesses have seen Mary. Men who are out dancing, taxi drivers, locals that are out on a night drive, you name it. So the main version of this urban legend, if you will, is that Mary was at the O. Henry Ballroom, which later became the Willowbrook Ballroom, but now it's permanently closed, and I'll tell you why later, but she was dancing with her boyfriend, and at some point in the evening, they got into a huge argument. So... Mary angrily left the ballroom, and she was walking up Archer Avenue when she was hit and killed by a driver who fled the scene after striking her. Hit and run. Wow. Yeah, awful. Rude. The driver was, unfortunately, never identified. Uh, So Mary's devastated parents would bury her at the Catholic Resurrection Cemetery, Located at 7201 South Archer Avenue, more than 150,000 people have been laid to rest there. She was laid to rest in her gorgeous white dress and her dancing shoes. And real quick about Resurrection Cemetery, the front gate has two bars um, that appear to have been pulled apart. And people would say that it was Mary. But later, spoiler alert, it was debunked. Uh, as a truck having hit it. So that was the official tea from the cemetery. So when people spot Mary, this is what they normally report. 
She's got blonde hair, bright blue eyes, and she's dressed in a flowy white party dress. Sometimes she's seen carrying a clutch purse, dancing shoes, and a shawl. Oftentimes, people report that Mary disappears into Resurrection Cemetery, or she'll dart in front of their car, or she could be seen at one of the local dance spots. So Richard Crow, he is a local ghost hunter, and he's super into all the folklore that Chicago has to offer. He's heard more than three dozen stories told by folks that have met the famous ghost. Accounts of Mary's apparition began in the 1930s and have continued ever since. Perhaps the most famous story surrounding Resurrection Mary is this. One Chicago man named Jerry Pallas, I want to say it's Jerry Pallas, might be Pallas, famously said that in 1939, he was at the Liberty Grove and Hall. It's a totally different ballroom, has no relation to the O. Henry, and he met a lovely blonde woman. They danced the night away, they flirted, and kissed. He commented on how cold her hands were as they danced, and he asked her where she lived. She told him that she lived on Damon Avenue, and then he offered her a ride home. When she asked him to stop abruptly at Resurrection Cemetery, Jerry was in shock. As she walked towards the gate, she disappeared into thin air. The next day, Jerry went to the home where Mary said she lived. A woman answered the door, and when he asked for Mary, she said nobody by that name lived there. Confused, Jerry was about to leave when he noticed a framed photo of a blonde young lady behind the woman. He said, wait, that's the woman that I danced with last night. And here's the kicker. The lady said, that can't be possible. That's my daughter, and she had, she had died years ago. She a ghost. Oh, no. So that was, that's the most uh, compelling sighting of this woman. There's another man who reported seeing who he believed to be Resurrection Mary in 1973 at Harlow's nightclub. Later that year, a taxi driver walked into the famous Chet's Melody Lounge to ask about the woman who left the cab without a trace and annoyingly so without paying her fare. <gasps> no one had seen her. So this lounge is like super close to the cemetery and he thought that maybe someone would have seen her. So another cab driver recounts seeing her too and I'm going to do a direct quote here he says a couple of miles up archer there she jumped with a start like a horse and said here here i hit my brakes i looked around and i didn't see no kind of house where i said then she sticks out her arm and points across the road to my left and says there and that's when it happened i looked to my left like this at this little shack and when i turned she was gone vanished and the car door never even opened. May the good Lord strike me dead. It never opened. So she's just like chilling in the back of this cab. One moment. And then the next. She gone. She out here. Ooh. She's not in the cab anymore. Spooky ooky. There was once a couple named Mark and Claire. And they were driving down Archer Avenue with their two friends in the back seat. Claire saw from the passenger window that there was a woman literally glowing in white, walking, almost floating, down the side of the road. Claire freaked out, and when Mark turned around to see what Claire had seen, he noticed there was 
a pitch black void where the woman's face should have been. They turned the car around and the apparition was completely gone. Another woman named Janet was driving near Resurrection Cemetery when the woman in white darted in front of her car suddenly. Janet slammed on her brakes and she knew that she must have hit the woman. However, there was no thud, no bump, no body, nothing. Mm. Both Janet and her friend riding in the passenger seat saw the apparition and have no explanation for what they witnessed. Similar occurrences have happened to others driving down Archer Avenue. More and more sightings happened between the 70s and the 80s. And not far from Resurrection Cemetery sits the bar, Chet's Melody Lounge, that I, that I mentioned. And this is something kind of cute. Every Sunday night, the bartender at Chet's will leave a Bloody Mary for her at closing time. And the current owner, who is Chet's son, says that there have been occasions where the drink in the morning, you know, it, it had just vanished. It was gone. She had herself Oof. a drink. So she took it to go. She took it to go. She said, Hey, can I get a styrofoam to go cup? And I know y'all are trying to be environmentally friendly. So I will gladly take one of those paper straws. Save the turtles. She's just out here taking all their Collins glasses. (laughs) She absolutely did not say save the turtles because she just didn't. All right. So with all that said, who exactly is she? So there are various theories about Mary's true identity which to this day, still up for debate. There was a young lady named Mary Bergovi, and she is widely believed to be the identity of Resurrection Mary, who died in a traffic accident right before her 21st birthday in 1934. However, the facts don't add up, namely because this Mary had short brunette hair, and she was buried in an orchid purple dress, not the white dress that she's known for. There's another woman, among several, but these are the top two. There's another woman that's thought that could be Mary, but her name isn't Mary at all. Her name is Anna Maria Norcus. So maybe the Mary was derived from Maria. Who knows? But she died in a car accident in July of 1927, coming from the O. Henry Ballroom. That checks out, but the problem is she's not buried at Resurrection, And she was only 12. She was only 12 years old. No. No. No, because Resurrection Mary is out here, like, trying to find a man, low-key. For real. And I'm glad you mentioned that because aside from that pairing of women that thought they hit her, apparently she's very hesitant to make herself known to other women. She's all about the men. All about the men. She's trying to find a man. She's trying to find a man up at the club. And I get that because if she died before her 21st birthday, she probably died a virgin. Oh, I hope not. Bless her. I hope not. She might have just told everybody she was a virgin and she actually wasn't. That's what I hope. Well, it's not for her. The usual virgin Mary for Christmas time. Although I will say, even though my story is not a Christmas story per se... Apparently, there's an uptick in activity in the wintry months. So, mm. that's my tie-in to the season. But, yeah, I tried to it's do this for, It's cuffing season, like, and she knows that. <laughs> it's cuffing season, honey. Everyone no, knows. I, even Resurrection Mary knows that. So, 
there are various other Marys, many of whom uh, are Marys that were somebody else's babysitter or someone else that they knew. Everyone wants to be a part of the folklore. Everybody wants to be a part of the story. So there's oh, the yeah. telephone game, the folklore, the, the tall tales. Yes, they're all chasing this this uh, Resurrection Mary clout for sure. So the question is, could it be that there are multiple Marys? Could this, let's face it, it's it's very similar to a lot of the other ghostly hitchhiker. Woman in white. Women in white type tales and chicago just wanted to have a little piece of that so i mean could it be multiple marys that are a culmination you know to to create this legend could it be that it's all hearsay objection hearsay who knows i think it could be objection hearsay but i also think like that it could be different women maybe not even named mary at all Mary mm-hmm. might not have anything to do with anything. I, I think it could just be different women who had tragic ends because that's a thing. <laughs> like mm-hmm. women that didn't get to grow up all the way and yes, live and I their lives. I think I think one of the themes with this whole urban legend in general is the theme of lost innocence. She gets killed, she, like you said. She may have been a virgin. Who knows? I don't know nothing about she Mary's sex She probably was, life. honestly. Like, so Back it's then, like unfinished yeah. business for real. <laughs> for real. That's really Man. it. She's She's got unfinished business, and that is to get laid once <laughs> and for all. Finally. Finally. Somebody Finally help her. So remember I told you about how the Willowbrook ballroom is permanently closed? Mm-hmm. You want to know why that is? Why? Why? I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> the Willowbrook Ballroom, formerly known as Oh, 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 Henry's. Just kidding. Oh, Henry's. <laughs> Ow! Ow! <laughs> um, it burned down in like 2016. Oh. Yep. I don't think there was anything paranormal about it. Allegedly, it happened during a roof reinstallment or some sort of roof repair. Uh, I don't know. Someone call OSHA because that shit went up in flames. <laughs> God, I hope nobody was hurt. Yeah. Um, sorry, I know I definitely rushed through that story and I could have made it more titillating for you all. However, I have to pick up my gentleman caller. My husband. From from the watering hole. It's all watering hole. <laughs> Down at the... <sighs> big, yeah. No, never mind. <laughs> Our favorite... Yes, dox me, Santa. Dox me so hard. <laughs> the bar. Those Somewhere who know. that y'all don't know. <laughs> Those who know, know. Those who get it, get it. If you know, but you I know. Will. The bar that Connolly is at right now. <laughs> It's always that's, the same bar. <laughs> that's our little agreement literally every time we record because we be recording at nighttime. I'm like, babe, you go enjoy yourself, treat yourself, and then Miss Amanda is going to be your Uber afterwards. And, that's actually uh, a good compromise because it's like it can it be quiet in the house, quiet on the set, <laughs> and then he can go and like do something he wants to do. 
Yeah. And then come back and then you can take your zoot and watch Microwave Massacre and <laughs> Oh my god. And then just go to sleep. Well, speaking of Microwave Massacre. <laughs> oh my god. So we talked about that what episode 2 or 3? It was a yeah. long time ago. And yeah. I Yeah. We were watching it pretty regularly. It was just background movie to play while we were cooking dinner and it got out of hand for a minute. It was becoming a problem. If there was a microwave massacre watcher anonymous group, I would have been in it. Uh, however, since we recorded that episode, maybe we've watched it once. But what we, oh God, before I let you go, what we have been doing, I know I told you I finished a Handmaid's Tale, but that's something mm-hmm. I have to do on my time, on my yes. dime. <laughs> what Connelly and I have been up to lately is we've been first and foremost we finished Breaking Bad. Yay! Finally, I know I keep talking about Breaking Bad. We finally finished it, and it was the most <coughs> satisfying. Oh God, bless you, Gazuntite. Thank you. I'm gonna do. It was so one. satisfying. It was almost as satisfying as that sneeze sounded. It wasn't a satisfying sneeze because I feel like it there's wasn't. another one lodged Look at the in light. There. Turn around. Look at your Christmas lights. Let it all out again. <laughs> I do it's that. I have happening. to look at the sun. I have to look at the sun. I'm like stare directly at the solar eclipse, and then you will sneeze. <laughs> oh my god, my eyes, <laughs> my leg. Um, <laughs> Breaking Bad. Okay, so I finished bad. finished Breaking Bad, and now what we're up to finally is we've been working our way through Better Call Saul, which is also freaking fantastic. It's more of a slow burn if you haven't watched it. And it's the payoff is is getting there. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it, watching these character arcs all the way. And I've got a soft spot for Jimmy, a.k.a. Saul. I hope that wasn't a spoiler. But um, I've got a soft spot for him. I love Kim Wexler. She's my favorite character. And yeah, so it's pretty much been Better Call Saul and Chill. That's my life. Nice. Yeah. What are you gonna nice. do after this? Um, I'm gonna eat my spaghetti leftovers because I made some really good spaghetti last night. Spaghetti and meatballs. Gluten free, of course. Yeah. I kinda made a bougie spaghetti and meatballs, which I don't have the budget for in this economy. Did you pair it with some Perrier? Uh, I do have some Perrier in there, but <laughs> I bought I bought that Perrier when I was sick, like, because I was nauseous. It was it was at the beginning of me having symptoms, and I was like, I'm gonna throw up, uh, and so I just like bought a six pack of Perrier, and I've still got them in there. Yeah, um, Perrier is good. But other than that, I'm just gonna eat my spaghetti and like probably find something to watch. Because, like, I'm obsessed with learning more about Anne Boleyn now. Like, I'm after watching that last night, I'm just, like, I'm obsessed. Is this my new special interest? <laughs> Is Anne Boleyn my new... <laughs> Is this my new ADHD hyperfixation moment? Yeah, because... I think it might be. Because at one point it was Taylor Swift, but now um, I had to unstand because of not getting tickets to the Eras tour. So like I've had other hyper fixations since Good. then. But yeah, I'm thinking Anne Boleyn might be my new one. 
So anyone that has any Anne Bullen, like fun facts and tea that you want to send my way, like leave it, leave it on a comment on Instagram or something or comments on this YouTube video and let me know any like fun, obscure Anne Boleyn facts that you might know that are like lesser known, um, like autobiographical historical info and even about Henry VIII, I guess, but Mm. I think it's well established that he just was evil. I think it was King Louis that was impotent or he had painful erections or something. I don't know. I always get it twisted. I think so. And also I think he was gay. Oh yeah. That would have been a great cover. It was Dean Beard. Yeah. Yeah. Nar. Can't be doing that. So yeah, I'm probably going to go find another Anne Boleyn documentary and probably just binge watch Anne Boleyn documentaries. Yes, let us know what you are hyperfixating on right now, everyone, and uh, <laughs> maybe we'll talk a little bit about it. Maybe we can relate, probably. Anyway, I'm going to go eat my spaghetti, go pick up yes. Connelly. Um, this is our holiday episode, similar to how we ended our Thanksgiving episode, I I also want to just reiterate um, and reemphasize that please enjoy this holiday however you celebrate it. You may not even celebrate Christmas at all. You may celebrate a different holiday or just nothing. And also, again, you know, if you don't have family to celebrate, Find something fun and make it about you. Buy yourself some shit because there's like so many great like deals on stuff around Christmas time. <laughs> Fuck Black Friday because that shit's a scam. But around Christmas, Nerd. things do actually get marked down like really, really close to Christmas, like last chance type shit. Buy some yeah. shit for yourself because, you know, treat yourself. Yeah. But if you have family yourself. you want to buy for, I hope you. I hope you buy some great gifts. Uh, handmade gifts are also really great and very well appreciated if you don't want to, you know, spend a Break lot of money. Bank. Yeah. Which for me, that's what I'm going to be trying to do because, yeah. Capitalism has gotten out of hand. Out of hand. Indeed. It's gotten out of hand. But anyway, enjoy your holiday and yes. we'll we'll be out here yeah, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Festivus for the rest of us. Whatever you like. Yeah, Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa wants Santa to come down her chimney. Santa, baby. <laughs> yes. Slip a sable Please. under the tree for me. <laughs> She's been a really good girl. I have, TDH. <laughs> she Come has. through she really with has. the gifts. Come through. <laughs> Come right. through with the manifestations realized. Anyways, bye. We love you. Bye. We love you. Bye. Happy holidays or not. Thank you so much for tuning in to Shook. New episodes of Shook drop every other Wednesday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, soon to be wherever you find your podcasts. Check out our show notes for more information on this week's episode, our social links, and more. Until next time, stay Shook. Hey! 
Do you have a personal paranormal encounter that you'd like to share with us? Visit our website, shookpodcast.com, to fill out our contact form. Or you can send us an email at shookparanormalpod at gmail.com.